if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. So we are continuing in our study this summer of the book of Exodus. I think this is week 13, which is a long time to spend. We're almost done, like three or four weeks left. Um, but if you remember, in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there was no real organized Hebrew religion. There were just these patriarchs who believed in this peculiar God who was not tied to the land like other gods, but who was tied to their family, the family of Abraham. And that at critical moments in their history, this God would show up and speak to the leader. They would discern that word and then go back to the people and, and they would trust God, this God, for guidance. And it, and it worked. It worked okay, at least. But it was totally dependent on these men, the leaders of the family. And there were no Jewish prayers, no liturgy, no scripture. There were no there was some Sabbath keeping and, and a kosher diet or circumcision. None of that stuff came until Moses. So after Joseph died in Egypt, Pharaoh forgot all about the help they had rendered Egypt. And it sort of seemed as though God was done speaking to B'nai Israel, remember the, the children of Israel. And then God spoke to Moses out of this burning bush, kind of like the way he used to speak to the patriarchs. And he said, I need you to go back and bring the people out of Egypt. And, and this happened kind of in a miraculous way. And then they're out in the wilderness and God began to move the children of Israel into like a new life stage, a new orientation. We talked about this through putting them through a season of major disorientation. And, and he started to give them structures like the bureaucracy, leaders of tens and hundreds and thousands. And they were given the law, the Ten Commandments and the case laws. They're given a covenant, like an agreement that Yahweh will be their only God. They will be God's people. And so God was beginning to kind of structured the common life of Israel, but they still had no organized religion. And today's story is, is the story of how that religion sort of began in earnest. And instead of showing up for a person, the patriarchs, at critical moments, what God committed to was to show up in a particular place and to do it all the time. And through the liturgical order and through that particular place, um, new habits and practices, uh, God, would, God would be present to God's people in a new way. And the name that was given to that order and that place especially was Mishkan. Um, it, it's a Hebrew word that means tent. It can also mean like shelter. Um, it later came to be meeting place and even temple. But for our purposes today, Mishkan refers to the tabernacle, this central mobile sanctuary that became a symbol of God's presence in their midst. It's a, a place to practice the earliest forms of the Hebrew religion, a place where everyone can come and meet with God. And it's really kind of a long chunk of the, of the book of Exodus, six chapters just describing how to construct it. That doesn't include the whole big chunks, chapters later of how they did actually construct it. But it, it was constructing the establishment um, of their order of worship, of their religious practices. If you remember when we left off last week, the Lord had given Moses the Ten Commands and the terms for the covenant, covenant and had made these three trips up and down the mountain, talking to God, hear the terms, come back down, same to the people, return and give the response to God. 
And, and when the people hear the terms of the covenant, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will faithfully do. And Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord now makes with you concerning all these commands. Um, now, I don't want us to gloss over the primitive religious element here, like all the blood stuff. There, there's been sacrificing bulls, apparently a lot of them, and doing these offerings to God, draining the blood out of animals, putting the blood in these massive basins, and Moses is sprinkling animal blood on thousands of people as they process by. This is gross, all right? And if it doesn't, it, it's, it's gory. It's a little bit gory. And, but to, to us, we see it as kind of like, oh, wow. But to them, this is just what you did in religions, in um, ancient Egyptian religion, all, almost all Canaanite religions, they practiced animal sacrifice and sometimes even human sacrifice, which is also part of the story, the Isaac stuff. And during their bondage in Egypt, though, um, Egypt had largely stopped with all the sacrifice. There's still some bird stuff they did. But they also did that thing, the, the um, retainer's sacrifice. This is where, like, if a pharaoh, someone really important died, they would kill their wife and all their servants so that they could go serve them in the afterlife. Not cool, <laughs> but part of, part of the story, right? But pretty much all primitive religion was bloody. There was really nothing recognizable as religion in this era that, w that didn't involve blood and sacrifices. That's what religion was in those days. And so in early Hebrew religion, blood is part of the deal, plays a central role because blood symbolized life. They had seen people start bleeding, then die. When the blood leaves you, life leaves you. So blood symbolized life. So when Moses sacrifices all these bulls, sprinkles the people with the blood, this symbolizes that Yahweh and the children of Israel are now um, pulled together as one blood. They're going to share their life now because of this covenant that's been sealed by blood. And here, um, with this construction of the Mishkan, the, the portable tabernacle, they're going to begin to ritualize some of these sacrificial elements of the early Hebrew religion, beginning um, really their symbolic life, their liturgical religious life. But unlike any other religion of the time, theirs will be totally focused on just this one God, not on many gods. This one God who they now know as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also the God who just brought them out of Egypt from the, the house of bondage, and also the creator and sustainer of the universe. Same God, they were believing this. Really the first group to, to think like this in history. And so when they go to construct the Mishkan, the tabernacle, it will have some elements drawn from all of those stories, story of the patriarchs, story of um, how God brought them out of Egypt, and especially the story of creation from Genesis. In theological terms, this, this tabernacle, the, the Mishkan that we're talking about today, it was seen as a microcosm of creation. Microcosm just means micro, small cosmos, like a miniature model of the cosmos that they could touch and see and feel that would um, sort of give them a tangible, symbolic rendering of the universe. Um, one of the Jewish commentaries I, I read calls it a celestial blueprint of the cosmos, which is the place that God dwells. So, so the tabernacle was like an idealized model of the cosmos as it was meant to be. 
And this is actually a, this is a picture from a drone of a model that's, that's constructed of the tabernacle. And it's how it's organized and outfitted is very particular. It seems to loosely follow the creation account in Genesis. So in Exodus 25, God tells Moses to have all the people, as we heard earlier, bring all different gifts that they have, any kind of material stuff that they, they took with them when they left Egypt, anything of value that might be at use, of use in constructing the tabernacle, bring it as, a, as an offering. And so they brought gold and silver and jewels and wood and fabrics, animal skins, even um, they call them sea cows, but they think they're probably dolphins. Uh, if you have dolphin skins, bring those. And then it says, and let them make me a sanctuary, Mishkan, that I may dwell among them. And then it says, exactly as I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, exactly as I show you, shall you make it. So this is going to be a cooperative effort between Yahweh and the people. And they're going to kind of use all the odds and ends and, that they bring to the, to the table here. Whatever they can use, just like the pre-existing objects and materials and ideas, stories, images, that, that they'll bring those to God and God will help them arrange those things creatively and make a microcosmos so they can catch a glimpse of the world as it is meant to be. And God will dwell with them in this, this tabernacle in a tangible way. And this will be symbolic of the way God dwells in the entire cosmos and how God longed to meet with all of humanity and shape their common life in a way that, that will help them once again bear the image of God. So this is, this is the symbolism used in it. And one of the things that they brought with them and offered up to God is this bloody idea of religion. And, and so God picks it up and works with it. Another is some kind of creation myth, right? They had this story of Genesis still in their in their minds of, of a God who creates the world in seven days. And these, um, the instructions then that God gives in building the tabernacle, they're arranged in these kind of seven moments that all begin with the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. Um, the first six times it's about creating things. The last um, time it's about Sabbath. And this parallels the Genesis creation story, right? Where each day began with the Lord said something like, let there be light. And then the seventh day where the Lord said, let there be a day of rest. So the building of the tabernacle is gonna kind of consciously follow the same pattern from Genesis. And the, ins the instructions don't begin with the, with the structure, but with the central beating heart of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, you can see a, a picture, a, a painting of this the ark is up there being carried with the cherubim on top. So this was a central um, symbol for the people of God. It housed the Ten Commandments, the Staff of Aaron, the, the Jar of Manna, and the ark would go before them when they marched out to war. It would be front and center in all of their liturgical festivals. And it was built to a very particular formula and for a particular reason. It was made of acacia wood, which was the common wood out there, and it's really the only tree that grew in, in the wilderness of Sinai. And it was covered in pure gold, inside and out, with these four rings on its side um, so that they could carry it on, on poles. Here you can see Indiana Jones with the real ark, um, circa 1936, um, which is how we know that the ark actually now is in D.C. in some warehouse somewhere, right? Actually, it's funny, I did read a couple places, you do not want to know the percentage of people who think that is actually a, a historical event that happened. Like, don't go poking around, it's very depressing. 
Um, Spielberg actually grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family, and he had the, the prop department. It was one of his big things with this film. He, they researched everything that they could know about this, the building of this, and they built it to spec. Like, it is, it is identical. They, it is the best we could do, anybody could do. And scholars say it's pretty good. But interesting to this, or most interesting to this, is that the lid, the big lid of the ark, was to be one big slab of solid gold that was hammered into this shape. So this thing would be like three or 400 pounds, super heavy, solid gold, incredibly valuable. And the lid was called a kaporeth. You roll the R, but I can't roll my R, so kaporeth. Um, traditionally, it's translated, well, after Luther, it's translated as mercy seat which should sound familiar to us. And then on top of it, you have these um, two cherubim on top of them, which are these fierce-looking angels with heads bowed and wings outstretched, kind of touching in the center, forming there almost like a throne. You can see it in the middle of the ark. And this is, this is super important because the, the, the cherubim um, forming this throne is theologically significant because the ark is actually one of those odds and ends and pre-existing objects and materials that they picked up in Egypt. Only the Egyptians called these things barks. So it's arks and barks. And they were, they, in Egypt, they were tiny little boats. But instead of being set in water, they were carried in processions, usually housing some statue of a god or something like that. And they were often... Um, put important laws or treaties or covenants inside some kind of a bark, and they would parade it around, and it would live usually in a temple of some kind. Um, and, and these were often gold-plated, often decorated with winged cherubs or birds. Um, usually, if they housed the document, there would be the god who they're making the agreement with on top of that ark. And so God kind of takes that found image and adapts it for the Hebrew people. And so the Ark of the Covenant would be like Yahweh's throne. And he would be sitting on top of it and it would contain the covenant, the, the laws, of the tablets of the law. But instead of being topped by a statue of some God, the top would be a, a seat for an invisible God, right? Such an innovative solution to their, their problem here. The, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is invisible, right? They've just been told you can't even make a graven image of this God. And so the ark itself would function as a footstool that sits below the mercy seat. So, so Yahweh, the invisible God, would sit on the seat and his feet would go on the ark, um, sitting on the, the, the wings of the cherubim. And so it's, it's like a, this would be like a microcosm of the entire world. So God is enthroned in the heavens and the earth is God's footstool. This is symbolized in God enthroned on the cherubim with his foot on this, this ark, this promise. And this kind of gives us insight to what they're doing here in the tabernacle and the meaning behind the tabernacle itself. God gives these detailed instructions because the whole tabernacle, all of it, down to the little detail, is going to conform to it like a heavenly pattern, you might say. It's, it's going to become, all of it, a tangible symbol of the cosmos as God intended it to be. And it's really long. It's like six chapters long. We could go through it. This, it would take weeks to go through it. So I'm just going to describe it to you. But I want you to get a, a picture of how it was constructed. So I want you to real quick look over at the windows over there. And I'm going to try to give you the dimensions. So this, see if I can get, do you see that? Can you see the little... 
little laser thing. Okay, this right here is about, this soffit is about 15 feet high. That's how tall the tabernacle was. And it was 15 by, so 15 up and down by 15 over. So this is a little longer than 15. That would be about 15 feet. So it's 15 by 15 by 45. 45 feet. If you imagine that square, it would go over to about the middle of this section. Um, so probably just maybe about second row there. And that was the size. It's not super huge. Pretty big tent for, for that day. And it was, uh, it was um, divided off by this curtain into two sections. One section, the Holy of Holies, was 15 by 15 by 15. It's a cube. The other section is just called the holy place, and it was 15 by 30. And then the whole thing was set in a big courtyard, which was um, 50 yards, like half a football field, by 25 yards. So about the size, if you, if out in our parking lot, you know, there's that black blacktop part. It would be roughly about that size. And it was constructed right in the middle of the Hebrew camp. And then kind of in a wheel formation all around it would be the 12 tribes of Israel, camped very orderly in rows, right? They're ordering their common life now. And if you approach, the first thing that you would see is this outer fence. It was made of white linen. And it was like seven, seven and a half feet tall. They were shorter back then. Everybody's about five, five. And, and they, they, this thing was seven feet tall, seven and a half feet tall. You couldn't see over it. It was fastened to the bottom so you couldn't crawl under it. The only way to enter was through this brightly embroidered gate at one end. And so immediately you see there's this discernible order and they're invited to enter, but they have to enter in a particular way through a gate. We start hearing about gates. We should be thinking of I'm, I'm the gate, right, from Christ later on. Their approach to God would be ordered just as God's desire for the earth is order. And so they're coming to see God, and the earth is kind of, that's what it's meant for. This is the place where we meet God, but, but we'll, we'll do this more readily if there's some order to it. And God has chosen humans to do the ordering. Remember, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, have leadership over it, till it, keep it, cause it to flourish so that everything is flourishing and can begin to experience shalom. That's the vision, right? Outside in the courtyard, you can see it, there's this, this big square altar, um, seven and a half feet square, made of acacia wood covered in bronze. The rabbis um, say that um, they would have filled it with earth and this little ramp would go up it and then they would burn it on top of the earth in there. They burn the, the sacrifice. And so out here in this yard, they would, they would be butchering animals all day. There would be blood everywhere and they would be burning these things on top of this massive fire. Again, this is, this is how primitive religion worked. Is a bloody thing. So there would also be, you can see this little laver, they called it, for the priests to wash themselves. It's right, yeah, there it is. It's, it's like a, a, a wash basin, sometimes called a sea, S-E-A, sea, which should immediately make us think of like the waters of Genesis, the, the spirit hovering on the face of the waters, or the waters of the Red Sea that they just passed through, or the waters of Noah that Noah went through in a ark, or the waters that Moses was thrown into in not a basket, the word is ark, right? And so this is tapping into all of those stories here. And inside then, if you walk through the, through the curtain, it was divided into these two rooms, the Holy of Holies, the 15 by 15 by 15 cube, and then the 15 by 30 um, chamber called the Holy Place. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where the 
pillar of cloud rested right over the ark, and, and it lit up at night like a pillar of fire. That's the Holy of Holies. The holy place was sort of like an antechamber that you would go in first. Only the priests could go in there. And um, it contained three objects, uh, a table, a lampstand, and an altar, all of them deeply symbolic. So the table was set with bread and wine. It would look something like this. It would have two stacks of bread, six loaves each for the 12 tribes of Israel, and then this wine. And the table is another one of those odds and ends that they picked up from Egyptian culture. It was very common in, um, with all the, there are like 79, 80 Egyptian gods, and it was very common in their temples to offer bread and wine. You know, bread was a big deal in Egypt. They invented bread. Um, they would offer this to, to the gods, and they would replenish it every day. Sometimes they would even burn it, and so it was going up in the smoke to be consumed by the god. So Yahweh takes this practice that they think this is what religions do and flips it on its head. So instead of replenishing it every day, they only replenish it once a week. And the bread and the wine is not there for God to consume. It's uh, a symbol of God. So God is offering the bread, not the humans. God is offering the bread to humankind. So it's the symbol of abundance in a world of scarcity. So God, it's God's provision for humanity. In God's creation, there should always be enough bread for everyone, right? As long as the people of God share and are generous, there will be enough. If people start to hoard the bread or like try to corner the market on wine and then start price gouging people around the bread and the wine, then they're distorting God's creation. Because the way it's supposed to be ordered is that when you get close to God, when you're drawing near to God, there's enough bread for every tribe. There's enough wine for every table. Creation always has enough. So that this table is a symbol of God's abundance in a, in a world of scarcity. Then there's the lampstand, which also has creation overtones. It, it, it's thought to be a menorah, although there's a big fight among rabbis. I read some of it this week. It's, it's really hilarious. You've never seen a fight like a rabbi fight. It's the, it's the best. They play dirty. Um, but there's a ton of symbolism here for Genesis and Exodus. In one sense, it symbolizes the pillar of fire. In another sense, though, uh, it symbolizes the tree of life from the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Um, its arms are called branches. The tops of it, they say, are, are to be almond blossoms. Um, it's, it's to be filled with olive oil and kept burning 24-7. And they would replace the oil, it says, in, in the morning and at the evening. It's echoing and there was morning, there was evening, or evening in the morning the first day, that kind of stuff. And there were seven lamps, right? Anytime you see seven, you're thinking this is a creation story thing. So, so it's, um, th this is a kind of hinting to us, this is a Garden of Eden kind of a place that they're constructing. The last thing in, the, in there was the table of incense, made of acacia wood, covered in gold. Everything in there is covered in gold. Every evening and every morning, the priests would take a little fire from outside and bring it in, bring in a, bring in a big old bunch of incense and, and just light a little incense fire there with the smoke going up and then the, the, um, the smell filling the room. So it, it would make this big cloud of smoke symbolizing the pillar of cloud from Exodus, and it would fill the, the place with this fragrance, which is meant to symbolize the presence of God. And so the priest would stand there with this big fire going, and it symbolized the prayer, and they would stand there and pray the prayers of the people. So they would collect prayers all day and then go and pray, do the prayers of the people like we do in, in our worship. And this 
This harkens back to Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with God in the cool of the day and just talking with God about their lives. So entering into this sanctuary was like entering back into the Garden of Eden, the world as, as God had created it, from which Adam and Eve had been banished. By the way, you remember what was, what was guarding the garden so they could not get back in? Two cherubim were guarding it. And, and so this is, this is drawing up all of that whole story. It's a tabernacle itself. It's as if um, in this little bit of real estate, the curse is, is reversed and, and the Garden of Eden is regained, or at least there's kind of a glimpse of it symbolically here. Covering over the tabernacle, like the roof of the place, really interesting were these thick curtains that, um, that formed the roof in four layers, each of them, again, with deep symbolic meaning. The outer covering was made of those sea cows things. Most of the rabbis seem to think it's dolphins. I guess the, the Red Sea was just Full of, it still is full of dolphins. Um, and it, it's dyed black, and that kind of made it waterproof. Another covering under that was ram skins dyed red. And then the, the next inner one was a fabric layer of goat's hair, bleached white. And then the innermost layer um, was fine linen and wool, which is, by the way, a mixture. You're not allowed to do this, but it was. And woven in deep blue and purple and scarlet. Um, so it looked like the sky. It was meant to mimic the cosmos. And so there's black on the outside, speaking of sin, then red, which is the way they make, you know, provision for the sin, then white for purity after the blood stuff, and then blue and purple symbolizing, it would be on the ceiling, that would be the part that you see, it's symbolizing um, the, the heavens, and that was to be embroidered with these angels, with cherubim, who were flying around the sky. This is a vision then of life after you go through this progression from black, black to through red to white, and then it's world as it's intended to be. Isn't that crazy? And so when the priest walked into the holy place, the interior, what they would see, the, the panels on the walls were wood covered in fine gold and then buffed to a high gloss so that anywhere they go, they'd be shining like these golden mirrors, shining back an image. This is like Adam and Eve in the garden facing each other. Azar Kenegdo, right? Facing each other as equals. Adam wasn't okay until he had an image shining back, the image of God to him. So it's tapping into that story here. And then there's the table and the altar for incense covered in gold plating. The, the table with the bread and the wine symboling God's abundance. The, the um, lampstand lighting up the world. Um, Speaking of purity, then there's the, the incense going up, symbolizing this communication between God, light bouncing everywhere, and they would look up into the ceiling, and it's like you were looking into the heavens with the cherubim flying around. It, it, it's a symbol of the cosmos. The whole tabernacle is this model of the world in which there's no way to inhabit it without seeing other image-bearing creatures. And there's, there's always somebody re reflecting back to you. It's filled with the glory of God, displayed in, in the artistry of human hands. There's a fragrant presence of God who, who listens and walks with us and wants us to bring our concerns and will help guide and navigate there with the, the ark and, and the pillar of clouds. It's stunning, it's stunning. And then there was the high priest. The high priest wore seven layers of vestments, seven like the seven days of creation. A white robe that covered him down to their hands and their feet, symbolizing purity. A blue robe made of one piece, again, blue signaling the heavens. And it had bells and pomegranates, the blue thing did, on, it, on the fringe of it, 
which was another found thing. They got this from the Egyptians who thought bells would keep away evil spirits. And um, then it, it gets, you know, readapted in, in their story as well. But then there was this linen ephod that they, that they wore. Nobody really knows what an ephod is. Um, some kind of garment peculiar to the priests, made of blue and purple and scarlet, finely woven with gold. And this marked the priests as special. It should make us think of Joseph's story. Remember the coat of many colors? Same kind of a deal here, marking him as special. And this, this it specifies actually in here, at this place and a lot of places, let the, don't let the builders do this part, let the artists do this. They do that over and over. Like, we're, we're going to need some of this worship stuff to be beautiful. So pick the guys who know how to do that. So they make this. And, and then there was, um, the, so, so there's the priest coming in with these vestments. And then they had, like, I don't know what you call them, other adornments. These are part of the seven. They had these um, shoulder pieces, like epaulets, that, that are um, made of onyx gemstones on which the name of the 12 tribes were inscribed, six on each shoulder. And then there's this priestly breastplate, you can see there, the kind of square, that um, has 12 jewels in it, inscribed each of them with the name of a 12 tribe. And there's a sash that girds up their waist, so they're ready to move. And then a turban guarding their head, on which was inscribed the words, Holy unto Yahweh. And they work, if you notice, in bare feet, just like Moses at the burning bush. And so this is tapping way into the Genesis story. So when Aaron, the high priest, went before God, he had these seven layers on of vestments, speaking to the holiness of God and the purity of the priests, the symbolic humans here, the beauty of the heavens, the beauty of the earth surrounding them. And as they enter into the tabernacle on their breastplate, he enters carrying the names of all the 12 tribes of Israel, and all the 12 tribes are, are signified by jewels, something unspeakably valuable. And, and then on his shoulders, these onyx stones with the six tribes on his shoulders. So literally, the priest carries Israel on their shoulders and near to their heart as they enter into the tabernacle to meet with God. And so the tabernacle became like the first holy place for the people of God. A place for them all, symbolically here, to meet with God. And they built it using whatever broken thing they could find. Just scraps of their life lying around that they carried. Odds and ends, objects and materials from culture, from life. And they brought it and gave it to God. And then God worked with them and tried to fit it together in a way that it became this mobile tabernacle, Mishkan, this this place where they met with God and where God would be revealed. And it was organized in a way that spoke of a God um, in whose image they were created and a God who has chosen to rule the world from a seat of mercy. That's their story all the way back then. It's really quite, quite stunning, I think, quite beautiful. And of course, as Christians, we're part of this story. We're pulled into this story. In the Gospel of John, it talks about um, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The, the word used there is mishkan. It's tabernacle. He tents among us. And then um, when in the transfiguration, remember Elijah shows up, but it's, it's Christ and Moses is there in a cloud on a mountain like Mount Sinai. 
And, and Peter, always making mistakes, Peter says, let's build tents, structures. It's Mishkan, it's tabernacle. Let's tabernacle this. In other words, it's like, let's keep this to ourselves. Let's build a special only unto us. And of course, that doesn't work because Jesus is going to eventually say, no, you're the, you're the tabernacle. You're the place. You as persons, but especially you as the people of God. And so after the life of Christ, who kind of is the one who draws us into this story, um, this whole, the meaning of this tabernacle, it changes for us. It's still there. It's preserved. It's part of what is found by Christ, but he reworks it for us. And so this is how I want us to close. I want us, if you would, just stand where you are, and we're going to just listen to a reading from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 especially, they play around with these themes. It's really great. I encourage you to read the whole thing later on today. But I'm just going to read you a selection from the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9 that speaks to this whole thing that we've been talking about today and how it's reinterpreted by Christ. Now, the first covenant, in fact, had regulations for worship and its earthly sanctuary. For a tent, Mishkan was prepared. The outer one, which contained the lampstand, the table, the presentation of the loaves. This is called the holy place. And after the second curtain, there was a tent called the Holy of Holies. The golden altar of incense before the Ark of the Covenant, covered entirely in gold. And in this ark, the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the seat of mercy. Now the priests enter continually into the outer tent as they perform their duties, but only the high priest enters the inner tent only once a year and not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is making clear that our way into the holy place had not yet appeared as long as the old tabernacle was standing but now Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation. And he entered once for all into the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And so he himself secured our redemption forever. And so he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance he has promised since he has died to set them free. For when Moses had spoken every command to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. And both the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship, he likewise sprinkled with blood. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified with blood. But the heavenly things, they required better sacrifices than these. So also, after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, 
Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. It's stunning, right? This new heavenly tabernacle where, where Christ enters with, with his own life attesting to his legitimacy. And he says, once for all, enough with all the blood. Enough with all the blood. No blood to get to God. No blood to each other, right? Enough. Enough with the blood already. God never wanted the blood. What God wants is you, your life, you and me, so that God could be our God and love us and teach us how to live and organize the world so that there's enough for everybody. That's our story. And now we are the Mishkan, the, the new temple. God inhabits us. We're to be the, the microcosm now. Our common life pointing to the way the world is supposed to be organized. Oh, man, it's, it's stunning. And this is our story. This is, this is a story that, that names us and shows us how to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this long journey of Exodus. That it's not enough um, just to leave Egypt to be free, but somehow we need to receive your, your law, your structures to make us human and somehow even find a way to be done with all the blood. As we, your people, called by you and part of this new covenant, um, turn our hearts to you as a church, we ask that you would continue to lead us into the world, that we would sense your presence, that we would be obedient um, to the way of Christ, obedient all the way to, to taking up our own cross, just meaning that we'll lay down our lives for one another and for the sake of the world. I pray that that would mark us, Redemption Church, and that you would use that to your glory. Amen. We're going to receive communion now, and we invite anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to join us at the table. You can see now today that kind of the symbolism here, this, this reaches all the way back to, to the tabernacle, the bread and the wine on the table. And God offers this to us, and, and we receive it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he, he blessed it and passed it around, had all his guys eating from the bread and drinking the cup. And, and what he said to them is, this, this is a new covenant in my blood. He said, every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup. Remember, there's a new deal between you and God. There's nothing standing between you. Your whole life is a tabernacle. Eat, taste, and see. Be made of what I'm made of. It's my body, my blood, and then go out into the world as the body of Christ. It's beautiful. He said, every time you get together, do this. And, and that's why we receive communion kind of as the pinnacle of the service. So I would invite you to join me and let's pray a, a prayer of blessing. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. 
and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?